beautiful song. Great reminder of what the Lord has done for us. Well, if you would, let's take our Bibles tonight and go to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter number 4. And we'll be primarily dealing with the subject tonight of the worship of God. Uh, We introduced chapter 4 with the subject of a vision of the throne. And we're continuing that same thought, but specifically looking at the worship of God. I want to draw your attention to verse number 3, and we'll read down uh, through a few of these verses. It tells us in Revelation 4, and he that sat was to look he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Of course, what John saw can only be described as a glorious sight. It was a glorious vision. The throne, as you noticed, was not empty. As a matter of fact, there is an intentional mention upon an occupant upon that throne. The one who is seated upon that throne or who fills that throne is indeed God. He is described as things that are pleasant and precious in our world. His countenance is described as being like that of a jasper or a sardine stone. Notice he's not described by any human features. We're not told that he's not described as a picture of a human. He's not described with human characteristics, but things that are precious. He's represented by an image. The phrase that Matthew Henry uses is that he is represented and he is envisioned by his transcendent brightness. It's a beautiful way to put it. The jasper is an interesting stone that is mentioned here. The jasper is a transparent stone, and we'll dig into this a little further in a few moments. 
but it's transparent, but when you look at it with the human eye, it offers a variety of vivid colors. It's clear, but when you look at it, it displays an array of colors. They are vivid to the sight, which is a signifying of the perfections of God. The Sardin stone is red, and that stone signifies the justice of God. It is an essential attribute of God that cannot go unmentioned when we talk about the worship of God. There has to be a mention of the justice of God. But it's also a reminder, not only of his justice, but his judgment and his wrath. There is never a point in time where God removes these things from himself. He doesn't take these things away and replace them with some other stone. But rather, this is a picture of how he governs. This is a picture of how he rules. We looked last week at how he is the center. The throne of God is the very center of everything. This throne that God is seated upon is, of course, the very center of it. And we understand that through our Lord and through our Savior, Jesus Christ, we understand that this God is perfect And as we sang that hymn, holy, 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 we also see that that is in verse 8. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which is, which was, and is to come. But we also notice that around this throne, there is a description of people who are occupying seats around the throne. Around the central throne, John describes that there are 24 seats or 24 thrones. They are seats, but there's 24 of them. And upon these 24 seats, it is described that there are four and 20 elders or 24 elders. Most likely these 24 are representative of not only the church now, but the church of the old and the church of the new. It is representative of the entire church. They're not just representing one aspect of the church, but rather the church of the Old and the New. Think about the Old and the New Testament. We can also think about the 12 patriarchs, the 12 apostles. The 24 is there. There is a mention of these 24 throughout the book of Revelation, but in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 12, the Bible says about them, It says, and had a wall great and high and had 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and the names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This 24 elders, these 24 seats, play a pivotal role in understanding what's going to happen, not only what's happening around the throne, but what's going to happen uh, even in the prophecies and the things to come. We also are told that in that description in Revelation 4, we're told a bit about what they are wearing. Notice they are clothed in white raiment and had on their heads crowns of gold. Of course, the white raiments are raiments that signify that which is uh, pure, that which is 
uh, of holiness. And the gold crowns upon the head, or the crowns on the head, are crowns of victory. These are 24 in seats, crowned in holiness, in righteousness, and wearing crowns of victory. These 24 elders are mentioned, and they are the first that are listed in the description of those that are around the throne. We're going to see, as we read, not only are there around this throne, these 24 elders, but we also see that there are other beasts, there are other angels, there are other that are there for the sole purpose of the worship of God. This picture gives us just a glimpse of the holiness of who God is. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that everything and every character, every occupant that we see is there for one reason and one reason only. It is to enhance and elevate the glory of God. None of them are there for their own glory. None of them are there for their own applause. They are there as worshipers of he who is seated upon that throne. They're not there for any other purpose but to carry out and for the glory of God. Now, within that heading, there are a number of things that they are doing, and we're going to look at some of those tonight. But remember that at the very center of everything, this world, this universe, all creation, at the very center of it all is the throne of God. The throne of God represents God's sovereignty. If God isn't sovereign, then man has no hope. If God ceases to be sovereign for a single second, the world is in trouble. God is ruling, has ruled, and will continue to rule, and there will be those who will be in a continual state of worship around him. So we see some of the occupants. Now what we will notice tonight is that these 24 elders, and then there's going to be a reference we'll read about about these four beasts, these four interestingly described beasts around the throne. The one thing you'll notice about them, every time they're mentioned, they are in a state of worship. There's not a moment we don't see them worshiping. We don't see them taking a break. We don't see them give, being given a reprieve that they're no longer having to worship God. They are continually worshiping God day and night forever. Who are they worshiping? They're worshiping the one that's upon the throne. So this throne is, of course, the very center of everything. Now, the first verse that we read there about he that sat was to look upon like a jasper. So the one who is seated on this throne at the very center of the universe, on the throne that represents the sovereignty of God, is described as having the appearance of those two precious stones, jasper and a sardis stone. Again, jasper, as I mentioned in the introduction, was a clear stone. It's crystal clear. As a matter of fact, if you'll turn over to Revelation 21, we get a little bit of a description of that. Uh, Revelation 21, 11, uh, says, having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So this stone is clear, it is pure, it is symbolic. It's symbolic of the holiness of God. This jasper is a 
holy picture of who God is. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, you'll actually see this jasper stone also being translated as a diamond. So the Old Testament actually uses those two terms interchangeably, talks about the jasper, and sometimes will translate it as a diamond. The Sardis stone, as we mentioned, is blood red, and it represents God's judgment against sin. And it represents his wrath. When we see the Sardis stone in the Old Testament, it's also sometimes referred to as a ruby. But it is representative of God's judgment against sin. So we have this picture of this perfectly holy, righteous God. But then we also see on the very same appearance of God, we see God's judgment against sin. Again, what's being worshipped? He who is seated upon the throne, who has the appearance of a jasper, clear, picturing perfect holiness, but at the same time, described by a sardis stone, blood red, announcing the judgment and the wrath against sin. This is the God that's seated upon this throne at the very center of everything. Interestingly, and I found this today, and I I have thought about this many times, but it's interesting that in, in this appearance, the jasper and the sardis stone are the first and the last of the 12 stones in the breastplate of the high priest. So the high priest, if you read in Exodus 28, verses 17 through 21, there's a description of the first and the last of those 12 stones in the breastplate. The first one is the jasper, and the last one is the sardis. So even in the Old Testament, in the breastplate of the high priest, this appearance of God as the sardis and the jasper is pictured even there. Back in Revelation 4, we also notice that not only is he described as a jasper and the sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So we've got this interesting uh, play on words here because we immediately run to the idea of a rainbow when we think about the rainbow that we see in the sky, all the different colors. But there's a description made that the sight of the rainbow was like an emerald. Now, I think most of us may know this, maybe you don't, but an emerald typically is green. It has a green appearance to it. So there's an emerald rainbow around the throne, which is representative of God's eternal nature. And it is signified, the covenant, of course, the rainbow, uh, we also know was symbolized as a promise that God gave that the earth would never again be flooded. But it's also, more importantly, it's about the reality of there is no more judgment or wrath to come for God's children. We are not subject, as his children, to any more wrath. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't go through trials. It doesn't mean we won't go through struggles. There are things where the church is going to pass through, but for the child of God, we have the eternal promise of that covenant, that we are not, as his children, going to be subject to his wrath. 
When we approach God as believers, I want you to think about this beautiful thought tonight. When we approach God as believers, we are, we are approaching him based upon his promises and upon his blessings upon us. So this is indeed a marvelous picture of what's happening around this throne. Again, think about what John is actually seeing. Those of us who have trusted in Christ and are his children, we will never face his eternal wrath. We'll never face that righteous, perfect, just anger because Christ bore the curse. He's the one that took upon himself that you and I might receive the promise. We receive the promises that we are no longer under the curse because of what Christ has done. Christ has removed the curse from us. Now these 24 elders become part of what oftentimes leads to mountains of speculation. But what I want us to do tonight as we begin this study is remember that this is not the only time these 24 elders are mentioned. So we've got to be careful that we come to our conclusions before we look at everything that these 24 elders represent. And tonight I'm more concerned about us looking from the 24 elders' perspective of the worship of God. These 24 elders upon their seats are described as surrounding the throne. Now again, I believe that this is representative of the complete number of all of God's people. This 24 is a representative picture of all of God's people. Remember, there are lots of symbols, there are a lot of visions, there are a lot of things that are happening here that are meant to, uh, to, to, to describe to us a bigger picture. They're representative of all of God's people. Now, that would include not only the old, but the new covenant. The 24 elders, of course, are going to be representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're also going to be representative of the 12 apostles. But it's all one worshiping God. It's a picture of the oneness that's in God, the oneness that's in Christ. And this picture that we see, what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord. Again, in Revelation 21, there are a lot of references here. If you go back to verse number 12 in Revelation 21, there's a mention again about the 12, the 12 gates, the 12 angels, the names written there, the names of the 12 tribes, the children of Israel, the 12 apostles. These are representative of that. So there's a unification that we see. We see that there's together the old and the new. But we also have to remember that this is a vision which contains symbols. Not necessarily is it always individual people. Again, we're very quick to say, who, who are these individuals? These are symbols. They are representative. It's a vision. It's not necessarily individual people. These elders are perhaps seen as angelic beings. I think it would be very dangerous for us to just dogmatically say, I can tell you exactly who those 24 are and what they are. And yet they're described in the midst of other angelic beings and what's described as beasts. Again, don't lose sight of the symbolism that's being given here. But we do know this, they're heavenly representatives. And what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord. They're around the throne. 
They're not off doing their own thing. They're worshiping around the throne. Again, what are they wearing? They're wearing white raiment, showing the purity, showing the holiness. Their crowns are symbolic of reigning with Christ in victory. So for our study tonight, I want us to consider just tonight so we stay on task that these 24 elders, in the very simplest terms, represent the entire church throughout all redemptive history. Okay, so these 24 represent the entire church throughout all redemptive history. Think of them as representative of the whole. Now notice there's also a lot of activity going on around this particular throne. It's described in verse number five, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Now, this immediately takes us back to the experience that the people of Israel had at Mount Sinai. Okay, if you'll go back to Exodus 19, this is very familiar or sounds very familiar to what the people of Israel actually saw at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verse 16, says, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Okay, so we see uh, that, that similarity between the lightnings and the thunders. If you go over to Exodus 20 and look at verse 18, and all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they were moved and stood far off. Okay, so what John is describing around this throne is very similar to what the people of Israel saw on Mount Sinai. Again, there's a lot of strange things happening here. It specifically says, out of the throne, out of the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Again, this is representative. What was happening at Mount Sinai? Well, there was the picture, of course, of God's majesty, God's power, and God's holiness. And I think that's what's represented at the throne by these events that are taking place. God's majesty, God's power, and God's holiness. But then Revelation 4 also says that there are seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. And this, we're told expressly what it is, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, the phrase seven spirits is employed or used four times in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> so let's look at those. Back in Revelation 1, verse 4, here's where we start to see this seven spirits. And this is all the way back in the very first couple weeks when we began our study. Revelation 1, verse 4 says, John to the seven churches, which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, Maybe we didn't pick up on that when we read it the first time, but John was talking about, or Revelation starts by telling us about these seven spirits that now we're reading about in Revelation 4 and where they are seated or where they're at there before the throne of God. 
we also see the seven spirits in Revelation 3, verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Seven spirits being mentioned again there. So those seven spirits or those seven spirits of God, notice they had, and they talk about the seven stars. Revelation 4, 5, where we just saw that, and then Revelation 5, 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now, these seven spirits, of course, we've looked at the phrase seven, and it speaks of perfection. It's symbolically seven, but it's also representative of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So this is a representation of this Holy Spirit of God in the seven spirits that are before the throne. That's the Spirit. Then it goes on and describes, and before the throne, another remarkable description again, this vision, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Again, what did crystal represent in in the jasper? It was representative of his holiness and of his, uh, his, his perfectness. But this is representative of something. This sea of glass also shows us that there is something about him, something about this throne that makes him unapproachable. In other words, this sea of glass is not just random. It has a purpose. And we understand that it represents that God is above all. He is separate from all. We cannot use God and compare him with something that we can humanly say, God is like this, or God is this, or if you look at this, this is God. But this sea of glass is representative of his separateness, if you'll let me use that expression, between himself and, of course, others. Now, why would there be a separateness? Because the one thing we don't understand about God's, who God is, is we don't fully comprehend what it means when we say God alone is worthy or God alone has glory. Our humanity does not fully comprehend what worthiness means. There's a hymn, a song, it's a more recent song, and it's, it's a question, is he worthy? Now, he is worthy. It's not a matter of do we answer that question or not. Is he worthy? Of course he's worthy. But what our human mind struggles with is what worthiness really means. So that when we even begin to think for a single moment that we have something worthy enough to approach this holy God really shows the fallacy of our thinking. That we in our fallen state, our fallen nature, our depravity, could possibly approach the throne of God with anything of our own. If we truly understood worthiness, we wouldn't even try. 
We wouldn't attempt to approach God. It is the epitome of pride for man to think, I am worthy to approach He alone who is worthy. Unless I approach Him in the only way I can approach Him, which is through Jesus Christ. And we don't also understand fully His glory. These are Christianese terms we use. We sing about worthiness. We sing about His glory. But do we realize that when we're thinking about the throne of God and the worship of God, do we understand how unworthy we are to even worship Him? See, apart from the ability to approach through Christ, we are not worthy. We are not able to approach Him. We're not able to come before Him. Where he is unapproachable because of his worthiness and our unworthiness. He's unapproachable because of his glory and our lack of glory. Now notice that this sea of glass that's as clear as crystal. There's a description again. In the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Literally beast here. Uh, this is in its translation, is not the same word as a wild animal. It simply means living ones. Now again, if we don't study, we just run and think all sorts of crazy things. Four beasts. We think animals. We think this is what it must be. But they're living ones. But then what gets interesting is that the, the, the beasts are described as being like animals. That's where we're going to see. There's a description of the beast being like a lion, the second one like a calf, the third one had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. But the word beast there means living ones. Okay, so I want you to remember that. It means living ones. So these four living creatures are described as having eyes in the front and eyes in the back. And they are close to the throne. Okay, they're very close to it. Now, we do know that throughout Scripture that the cherubim are also described as being very close to the throne. Some commentators say that these beasts might be seraphim. They may be angels of the highest orders. But what we are supposed to understand is that they are living ones. And again, what are they doing? They are in worship. Now, there is a great debate over who these creatures are. And my point tonight, and if, if, even if you ask me, is well, I'm not going to be able to settle that for you. I just won't. I will not be able to settle, and I'm not sure any of us can truly settle, what and who these creatures are. There are good men who would say, oh, these are, these are clearly cherubim. There are other people that will say, no, these are seraphim. And then there are people that will say, no, what this is representative of is all creatures, just like the 24 elders are representative of all God's people. But these four beasts may simply just be representative of all creatures who are worshiping God. Some argue they're not angels. They simply say, well, we don't really know what they are. But they're special creatures of some sort, and they're at the throne. 
Again, I think we should be careful of being certain of what we think they are. Because you're going to find ten commentaries, you'll find five different opinions on who these four beasts are. It is hard to tell. Now, seraphim are mentioned in Isaiah 6. Okay, we do, we do, we've read that God has brought us to Isaiah 6 over the last couple of weeks a number of times from an unexpected place when we're studying the parables. But you'll notice if you go back to uh, Isaiah 6 that there is a description there of these seraphim. They are part of what is there. But again, to simply say for certain that this is what these individual creatures are uh, would be very, very difficult. But they are described as four living creatures. Now, one commentator put it this way. He said, these four living creatures that are in John's vision may perform many of the same functions that are usually attributed to the cherubim. Now, I realize tonight this is, this is really deep thinking and it's really deep thoughts of what we're trying to, we're trying to actually pull this in. But there are a couple of things that we see regarding especially we know about the cherubim, we know about what the cherubim do, and you'll notice back in Revelation 4, the four beasts, we'll come back to verse 7 here in a moment, the four beasts each had each of them six wings about him. Okay? So we start to see the cherubim and the six, they have six wings, they're full of eyes within, they rest not day and night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. So we do know that these four creatures, these four living creatures in John's vision are performing some sort of function. Now, there's a reference about the guarding of the holy things of God. If you go back to Exodus 25 and look at verse 20, there's a reference to creatures that are guarding, again, the holy things of God. Exodus 25, verse 20. And this is a description of the cherubims. Okay, so this is, this is where we could start to see that maybe these four beasts possibly are cherubims that are being described. Verse 20 of Exodus 25 says, And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee. Now the reason I mentioned about guarding the holy things of God is because those cherubims were what was placed on the top of the ark to guard the holy things. So we know that one of the things that the cherubims do is the cherubims are responsible for guarding the holy things of God. Scripturally, Exodus 25 tells us that the cherubims are guarding. Okay, they're guarding the holy things of God. In Revelation 6, we're also told that the cherubims are responsible or part of pouring out the wrath of God. Revelation 6, verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts, 
Okay? Now the four beasts, again, we're, we're, not, we're not dogmatically saying these are cherubims because they're referred to as beasts. But those four beasts described around the throne are now, in Revelation 6, being described as carrying out the wrath of God. So here's what it says. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, a noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and the power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. Now these references to these four beasts, now we see four beasts being mentioned in Revelation 6 as helping or carrying out, pouring out the wrath of God. Four beasts are also mentioned in Revelation 15, 7, which says, And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. So these four beasts are guarding the holy things of God. They are also pouring out wrath. But thirdly, we also see them constantly praising God. Revelation 4, 8, Revelation 5, 8, Revelation, 4, or Revelation 7, 11 also makes mention of them, these four beasts worshiping God. Here's what Revelation 7, 11 said. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. Four beasts mentioned about guarding, pouring out God's wrath, but also are praising God. One more time, they're mentioned in Revelation 19.4. And I want you to notice that oftentimes the four beasts are often mentioned in correlation with the 24 elders. So wherever you see the 24 elders, you're seeing the four beasts at the same time, especially with worship. Here's Revelation 19.4. And the four and 20 elders and the four beasts fell down and worship God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. So these four living creatures, these four living ones, okay, now we can start to put some pieces together. Again, be careful about being dogmatic about who they are. But in the first half of chapter 4, we are seeing a reference being made to cherubim guarding. Okay, so we do see there's a hint about cherubim being the guardians of that throne later on when we get to revelation that's why we can't make this judgment call completely right now is we are later going to see the pouring out of god's wrath but what i want us to see for tonight specifically is their praising of god that they're praising god in worship now let's finish tonight with just the symbolism i think is found here 
uh, in Revelation 4 with the description in verse number 7. We'll come back to verse 8 next week. <clears throat> I, I found it fascinating as to why these particular animals are being mentioned. And I found, that, I found an interesting statement um, in an old uh, quote by a commentator who mentioned an old rabbinic saying that may give us a little bit of a clue as to the description and why these particular beasts and why they are the animals that they are. The first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. This symbolism here, again, a lion, a calf. A calf here is a reference to a young bull, is what this is, a man and a flying eagle. Now here's the rabbinic saying that I found that is kind of interesting about the animals. It says, the mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among the domestic animals is the bull. The mightiest among the wild beasts is the, is the lion, and the mightiest among all is man. The four forms suggest whatever is the noblest, strongest, wisest, and swiftest before the throne is taking its part in the fulfillment of God's divine will and also the worship of the divine majesty. In other words, these four living creatures are representative of that which is worshiping he who is worthy. It's best to understand maybe these four living creatures in a similar way, as I mentioned, as we think about the 24 elders. They're representative. They're representative of all creatures in the created order. Now remember, if you think about creation, when God created the heavens and the earth and God created the earth, he created man. And man was given the dominion and man was given the authority to name every one of those animals. Man was to have dominion over the animals. So you see these animals mentioned, but then you also see man is pictured. That third beast had the face of a man. Interestingly, that whenever the four living creatures worship, the 24 elders either follow or join together in worship with them. I don't think that's a coincidence. That wherever the four beasts are in worship, those 24 elders are there as well. Now again, a study through the book of Revelation, we are not going to come to a grand conclusion of everything every Wednesday night when we bring it to an end. But what I do want us to think about tonight is I want us to consider that the primary role of those that are around the throne is the worship of God. Even though they are those that are carrying out other parts of God's will, they are carrying out God's purposes, they're carrying out God's judgment, God's wrath, they're worshiping God. When God himself announced and he announced to all those who were near him. Remember all the way back in Exodus 3, when God was speaking to Moses, he reminded Moses of this great truth. I am who I am. And he told Moses, you shall say to the children of Israel, what I want you to tell the children of Israel is that I am has sent you. 
Remember Jesus, as he was penning these words to John, he, he renounced to him all the way back in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am he who is and who was and who is to come. So great is the throne that even the cherubim, those four beasts, the 24 elders, they are all gathered around this throne for the purpose of worship. They're in the immediate presence. Imagine what they actually see. They see what you and I don't see. But they fi- you find them in an act of worship. One of the notes in one of the commentators said that God is said to have glory, honor, kingdom, and such like given unto him when we godly and reverentially set forth that which is properly and only his. What those 24 and those beasts and those angels are all doing is they are giving God proper glory. They're giving him proper honor. They're giving him properly what he is worthy of. And that's what you and I are to do. We are never, ever, ever to take the worship of God flippantly as if it doesn't matter how we worship as long as we worship. It all matters. It matters how we think about God. It matters how we think about the worship of God. Mankind today and the church has decided we can worship. God doesn't care how we worship Him. He most certainly does care how we worship Him. And not everything we call worship is acceptable. And so when we think about worship and we think about the divine honor that they're giving to Him, God is worthy of our worship. He's worthy to receive glory. He's worthy to receive honor. He has created all things, it tells us. Now we see three main signs, and we'll finish with this. Three signs of divine honor being given to God. The first one we see is people are falling down. They're falling down on their faces. People like to define worship. True worship is a falling down on your face because of your own knowledge of your unworthiness. Now I know in our modern church that worship is often signified by many people by the lifting of hands and a certain feeling and a certain emotion. And I'm not saying that all of those things are wrong, but do you, when you see proper worship in the scripture, what do you see? You see people falling down. You see them falling down. Why? Because there's a recognition of their unworthiness. There's a recognition that even though I'm in Christ, even though I've been bought with a price, I am still unworthy to approach this God. You see, just because we're in the, in the faith doesn't mean now suddenly that we don't fall down on our faces and worship before God. That's a sign of divine honor when we fall down on our face. But also notice that those that are worshiping around the throne, they're adoring and they're casting their crowns. We'll see this later. They're casting their crowns before God. They are emptying themselves of all of the glory, all of the honor, 
and they're giving it all to God. On every occasion, you see those that are worshiping, acknowledging holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It's a song of praise. These elders, if they do in fact symbolize the entire host of all the redeemed, they are falling down in deep humility. They worship. We later see they cast those crowns at his feet. What are they doing? Worship acknowledges that we owe everything that we are, everything that we have to God. All of it. We owe him all. Not some, we owe him all because of what he has done. Thou art worthy, verse 11 says. Thou art worthy, O Lord. Remember I said that song, is he worthy? They're not asking the question. They're saying it. You are worthy, Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure. Guess who else is created? You and I are created. What are you created for? You are created for his pleasure. Not for your happiness. I told my seventh graders that today and they almost seemed shocked. God hasn't created you to be happy. We've been been dealing with trying to get them to understand the image of God. So God didn't create you to be happy. God created you to live in his image. God created you to worship him, to be at his disposal, to be at his good pleasure. The reality is, is that the very sum of everything these angelic beings are doing, the very sum of it is they're giving all glory to God. Why? Because he is the creator of all things. He is the eternal God. Everything we have, everything that will be, everything that is, is because of a God who governs from the very center of everything. Imagine being made worthy to even approach this throne. Our worthiness is not in who we are, not in what we do, not in what skill, but our worthiness is in Christ. Worthiness to approach a perfectly holy and righteous God. As the psalmist asks, and I ask myself every day, what is man that you are mindful of him? That he's even mindful of us. The fact that he has done anything for us ought to put us in a state of, I want to truly worship God because I continually daily feel my unworthiness. Oh, there's nothing that bothers me more than the flippant worship of God. That we can just kind of offhandedly say, well, God will be all right with this. When you see the throne and what they're doing, I don't think God's just okay with anything. Think about his goodness. Think about how he is so holy and worthy 
that without God being mindful of us, He would remain unapproachable. The song that they're singing, the song of praise they're singing, verse 11 tells us it's the song of creation. The sovereign will of God is the ultimate reason for the existence of all things, including you. The sovereign will of God in all things, in your creation, even it's you, he is, that is the reason why we even exist. All creatures were. They are created for God's glory and for God's pleasure. Why do we exist? We exist for God's pleasure. We exist to bring glory. We exist to bring worship. When we gather as a church together, we're, we're gathered to worship God. Not just to have a time that we just kill an hour or two, but to actually worship God. And to think about, Lord, how unworthy. Because we come in, we, we know, like today, you were reminded of your unworthiness at some point today. It should have crossed your mind today how unworthy you are to even come unto God. Because we sin, we do that which we shouldn't do, and yet God, in His sovereignty, has made a way for us to approach this throne. All because of what Christ has done. There are passages that are there are passages that are, I think they're life-changing, and this is one of them. I think this ought to be one of the things that we study and we read and we go over and over and over again and think about, is my worship as it should be? Not as my worship as I think it should be, but is it as it should be? Is it as God says it should be? Again, there's a lot more I can say, but we'll stop there. But I hope we'll think about the worship of God and what it means. What it means when the, those around the throne say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. I hope we see God in that light tonight. Well, let's conclude.